This passage preaches itself. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 5. Last book in the Bible. John the Apostle who wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, here at the end of his life, is out in exile because of the Gospel on a deserted island in which he will die there. But while he is in the midst of that suffering and penalty for trusting Jesus Christ, this revelation comes to him. The the book begins with John saying, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Y'all, we are in the Spirit on the Lord's day together too. Because we have the Holy Spirit of God poured out on us and we are His congregation gathered together. So from one man who is in the Spirit on the Lord's day and saw a vision, let us join in the Spirit on the Lord's day in receiving this vision from God through John so that we can know who our God is. Revelation chapter 5, starting in verse 1. John talks about seeing the throne room of God. Then I saw in the right hand of the one seated on the throne a scroll written on both sides, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even to look in it. And I wept and I wept because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or even to look in it. And then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Look, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw one like a slaughtered lamb standing in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures among the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. And when he took the scroll out of the right hand of the one who seated on the throne... And when he took the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders, they fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp and golden bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slaughtered and you purchased people for God with your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. You made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign on the earth. You know, that's our passage for today, but let's just keep going with the good stuff. You don't need to hear from me. Here's some more. John says, Then I looked and I heard a voice of many angels around the throne and also the living creature and the elders. Their number was countless thousands, plus thousands of thousands. And they said with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb 
Worthy is the Lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessings. And I heard every creature in heaven, on earth, under the earth, on the sea, everything in them say, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped him. Amen. This is a vision of the throne room of God. This is what it looks like to worship our God even today. John has no hope in his life or for his life when he is writing this down. He has put all of his hope and trust into Jesus Christ and his resurrection. And so John has gone as a lamb before slaughter his entire life so that other people could hear the good news that God was for them and has made redemption for them. And so here John is rejected by the world in exile and he will die here of exposure out on this island. But before he does, he sees a vision and he's able to write it down and have it smuggled out so that the church, the churches, and all of us could know that the hope we have in Christ is a good, righteous, joyful hope that will be fulfilled at just the right time. All of John's hope is in this, and he gets to see his hope fulfilled. And we get to share in this hope also. And it goes like this. The elders, the angels, these living creatures and beasts, all these spiritual beings are surrounding the throne room of God. And here, as in elsewhere in Scripture, the throne of God itself is the whole center of the universe and of reality. The very center of all of it is the throne of God. And they're all surrounding the throne of God. And one cries out, they hear a voice. In the hand of the one seated on the throne is a scroll that's sealed up. You're you're to understand that this scroll is the plan. This is our hope fulfilled. This is what God is going to do to make everything right. The plan is there. It is prepared perfectly. It's in the hand of God. And a voice cries out, who is worthy to open it? That is, who is worthy to fulfill the work of God? Who is worthy to accomplish it and do it? And then there's a silence. A deafening silence in the throne room. As everyone looks around and thinks and does an accounting and realize that there is no one. Not there in the throne room, not on the earth, not under the earth, not who has died, never who has lived. There is no one who is worthy to bring about the fulfillment of the hope that we have, the forgiveness of our sins and the resurrection of the dead for eternity with God. No one. 
you got to think the Apostle John here is scratching his brain, thinking, is it Abraham? No. A man of righteousness, but a sinner, and he was not worthy to accomplish the salvation of God. The King David, surely King David, best of all, King David. But no, even that man after God's own heart is not worthy to fulfill the hope that is promised in God. Is it Solomon, maybe, the wisest? But no. Perhaps Moses, surely. But no. And there have been so many excellent men and women throughout history, Christian believers who have set about to bring great reformation. Is it Martin Luther? Is it Jonathan Edwards? What about for us Baptists? Is it Lottie Moon? Perhaps Annie Armstrong? Billy Graham? No one is found worthy to do the work of redemption that God has planned. And so John weeps. What else are you going to do? He weeps and he weeps. But then one of these elders who is there worshiping God comes over and puts a hand on him and says to him, do not weep. The lion of Judah is worthy. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered and he is able to open the scrolls. There is one. Do not weep, congregation. There is one in whom we can hope. And it is this lion, Jesus Christ our Lord, God Himself who took on flesh. And this lion takes the scroll from the one seated on the throne. And John looks, and when he looks at the lion, what does he see? He sees a lamb. A slaughtered lamb. Verse 6, Then I saw, looking at the lion, looking at our God, looking at our Savior, looking at our hope, John turns and looks, and what he sees is a slaughtered lamb standing in the midst of the throne who has seven horns, seven eyes, and the seven spirits of God. And he went and he took the scroll out of the hand of the one seated on the throne. This passage is powerful in teaching us who our God is. And who is our God? Our God is the lion who became a slaughtered lamb for us. Our God is Jesus Christ. In every way, God himself, through whom all things were made, who by the will of the Father and by the willingness of the Son came down and took on flesh to die on a sinner's death on a cross for all of us. This is our God, the Lion, who made himself a slaughtered lamb for our sake. The one who said in John chapter 10, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down willingly. That is Jesus Christ, our Lord, the one who would willingly lay down his life for all. Who is our God? 
He is the one who is between the throne and all things. Without telling you it directly, the thing that's tied together these last five weeks of sermons has been these vignettes, these pictures and portraits of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit at work together. I didn't quite announce that to you. I want to just show you these. And next Sunday we'll begin like we usually do, going straight through a section of Scripture. But for this last Sunday, let us look at the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And how important it is you understand that the Son, the Lion, the slaughtered Lamb is standing. But where is he standing? In the midst of the throne. This is a perfect and interesting way of talking. The Son is both the one on the throne and the one standing before the throne. That's who our God is. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Distinct and yet one. This doesn't make sense to talk about for anyone else. Except that the one who is our Savior, who is our Lord, who saved us, is both the one on the throne and the one standing before the throne. He is in the midst of the throne. This is our God, Jesus Christ. And you also see here that he has in this apocalyptic vision seven horns and seven eyes that are the seven spirits of God. You're to understand as you read through Revelation, as you read through all of Scripture, when you see seven here, it means perfect in a way. You're to clearly understand here that seven horns means he is perfect in power and ability. The horn being a symbol of strength. He is perfect in strength. Seven eyes meaning that he is perfect in insight and wisdom. Both able to see all things, but as the eyes communicate wisdom, able to understand correctly all things. And that this is not seven spirits but the one perfect spirit, the spirit of God himself who is there on the Lamb. And speaking about our God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who are right here together, you have this picture. And the picture we're to see of the throne room of God includes these living creatures and it includes elders and it includes heavenly hosts all surrounding it. But the center image in the throne room of God is the one God on the throne and at the same time the Father on the throne, the Son who stands between the throne of God and all things and the Holy Spirit who is there empowering Him. As my theology professor Malcolm Yarnell says about this, the Lamb is so close to the Father that He shares the throne with the Father, receiving worship from all creation. And the Spirit is so close to the Lamb that He shares in the body of the Lamb upon the throne. This is our God. That it is the good, loving will of the Father towards all us that the Son should receive all the judgment deserved by us. And so the Son, who by the grace of God and willingly, lovingly made himself as a slaughtered lamb for all of us, the Holy Spirit who has empowered all of that and is empowering the congregation today to hear it and to believe it, behold our God. 
the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, eternally enthroned in glory and worshiped continuously. So what should we do today? Given that this is our God, what should we do? First, let us recognize that we have nothing to offer him. This God needs nothing from us and we have nothing to offer him. It is a good and appropriate custom for all of us that if somebody invites you over to dinner, you try to bring something along with you, right? This is a good custom. It's appropriate. If somebody's inviting you to dinner, if somebody's gathering a few people together, you say, what can I bring? Let me bring something. And their answer is generally, and it's okay if they say, yeah, bring a salad, bring ice. <laughs> but a lot of times they'll say, no, 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 no. I've got this. You just come and eat. Uh, let me provide for you. But we feel the obligation to bring something with us, and we're not wrong in that scenario. But you know, sometimes there are just feasts, there are just parties, there are just dinners where we couldn't bring anything to contribute. Where you say, oh, I'll bring the salad at least. But on arrival, you discover that what you brought was a bagged salad, and what is presented is the perfect salad. Imagine, if you will, a dinner feast where you try to bring something, but what you bring is in no way sufficient or up to snuff for the meal. You think, oh, I'll bring ice, but what you bring is like a block of ice, and what's provided is perfect sonic ice. It's like this when we come into relationship with our God. We have nothing to bring, and anything that we think we could offer is useless and inferior to what he has to offer and wants to offer to us. In this throne room scenario, we're not to imagine that Jesus is the loving one and God's the angry one, that the Father is angry and the Son is loving and compassionate. After all, it is the Father's will that the Son should do this because the Father has loved you so much. Rather, you are to understand that this God, by his very nature, is loving and merciful and cares for you and has shown loving kindness towards you. What can you bring into this relationship? There's nothing. All that he wants is you to come and to know him and be blessed by his presence, his mercy, and by living the life and the way of Jesus Christ. He needs nothing but provides everything. Perhaps one of the silliest, you know, just goofiest Christmas songs is Little Drummer Boy. It's kind of cheesy, right? I mean, you know it too. It's kind of cheesy. But the Little Drummer Boy has a lot of special significance for me because I have this vivid memory of my childhood when we're putting out the Christmas decorations and playing some Christmas music and the song Little Drummer Boy comes on and I hear it as an elementary school kid and for the first time start to listen to the lyrics of it and to me it's like a revelation <laughs> as an elementary schooler. This idea, oh, he has nothing, but he comes and does what he can anyway. And I remember vividly that Christmas playing that song over and over again when my parents asking that we could listen to anything else, <laughs> the answer for me that year was no. This is my song for this Christmas. It's a silly song, but there's a piece of truth in it. We have nothing to offer God, but he does want us 
for our own sake to know him. The good life is knowing God and being in relationship with him. And apart from that, we're just broken people living in a broken world until the day we die. But there is great, great hope only and exclusively in this, that God, the creator of all things, The one who has orchestrated your life has good planned for you and you will find it only in coming to him completely and wholly and offering yourself to Jesus Christ as Lord. What must we do? Recognize that we have nothing to offer him, but yet let us still offer our whole lives in service to him. This is discipleship. The Christian life is not a life where you say, okay, what do I need to do? Jesus is Lord, great, Jesus is Lord. Be baptized, great, be baptized. Now back at it the way I was before. No, the Christian life is a life of discipleship. It is one where we say, my entire life, I have nothing to bring to this relationship, but I will give everything anyway. The Christian life is a life of discipleship, of offering oneself wholly and completely to God. What are we to do, given that this is who our God is? Of all the religions in the world, there's, there's nothing that anyone thought to make up that is this good or this powerful as God himself, the lion becoming the slaughtered lamb for our sake. Because in our hearts and minds and imaginations, we wouldn't dare believe that reality could be this good. But it is. Our God made himself as if a slaughtered lamb for our sake. So, what must we do today? We must know that the slaughtered lamb stands in judgment over the world. There's a pernicious belief system that's come about in our hearts and is exposed to temptation to all of us here in America. And it is popularly called right now Christian nationalism. I don't like that term because it takes two good terms, Christian and nationalism, both nationalist, both of which I am, and puts them together as if to mean a great heresy. And the idea is wrong, but both of those composite things independently are right. I also don't like the phrase because I'm not willing to call something Christian that doesn't mean believing in the slaughtered lamb and giving our lives wholly to Jesus Christ. Perhaps deistic nationalism would be better, but it's this idea that in one way or another has taken over a lot of people, many of which who were not properly Christians to begin with, and it's taken the love of country, which is good, and the love of God, which is great, and turned them around to not be God and country, to be country and God, and to assume that the spiritual victory that God wants is a political victory of one's own choosing or making of one's own party. So that you can rightly justify doing whatever it is it takes to win a political victory, because that must be what God wants rather than offering yourself as a slaughtered lamb, just like your Savior savior did. It also means a great deal of cynicism, skepticism, and now disbelief if things didn't go your way at any point. 
And, and it's simply the wrong connection and misprioritization, but deadly wrong connection and misprioritization of caring for one's country and loving one's God, which are both good things from God. However, we are not to put country first or God second, and we are not to assume that our victory is over other people or that the victory God has called us to is a political victory. After all, Scripture says our battle is not won over flesh and blood. Our battle is a spiritual battle. So people are not the enemy that we're supposed to beat. People are the battleground that we're fighting over hoping that they will have an opportunity before Christ returns to come and know God and join his side. After all, what else is it to be a Christian other to than have been born as a member of the world, but then repent of that connection and now become a member of the kingdom of heaven? We're all ones who were born on the wrong side of God, but we who are Christians have renounced our allegiance to the kingdom of the world and the king of the world and have rather given our allegiance to Jesus Christ, the slaughtered lamb. The slaughtered lamb stands in judgment over this attitude. What I'm saying is not anti-American because American goodness is not necessarily based on winning or victory over one's opponents. American goodness is rather based on an old political expression from a politician who I don't much care for looking back historically. However, it's a good expression when it was said, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. The goodness of America exists only when it is fulfilled by the righteous Christian living of the citizens of America. American goodness is in this, when we love and fight for and lift up and encourage and lay down our lives for our neighbors, not seeking to gain victory over them, but seeking to lift them up as God has lifted us up. So for all of you here today who are like me, that is devoted Christian and conservative politically, let us continue on being participants in our country in every way in a worshipful way to God, but with our eyes fixed on this throne room scene in heaven in which we realize that the only one who is worthy, the only one who can save us, the only one who is good and who has done it on our behalf, the only one who can fix our problems in our life is Jesus Christ our Lord, a lion who made himself the slaughtered lamb for us. And so let us also recognize that Christian leadership will not look like worldly leadership. Worldly leadership seeks to win and to get one's own way no matter what. But that's not our move. Christian leadership is to make oneself the slaughtered lamb for others. You'll recall we've talked about recently several times, both at funerals and in sermons, about John 14. Where Jesus says to his disciples, don't let your hearts be troubled. Troubled, Believe in God, believe also in me. And he says, you know the way. And Thomas, the disciple, says, we don't know the way. What is the way? And Jesus responds, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. 
If Jesus is the way, then what does it mean for us that he's the slaughtered lamb? Except that we too, if we're going to be disciples and follow Jesus, must make our lives as slaughtered lambs for other people. The Christian life, the life of discipleship, is the life of giving one's own preferences, goods, hope, benefits, laying it all down for other people. It means if in interpersonal relationship with each other, there's going to be wounding that happens, to be a Christian is to say, Father God, if there's going to be wounding, then let me be the one who is wounded and not the one doing the wounding. If someone's going to have to go to slaughter or is going to be hurt, experience difficulties, then let it be me and not them. This is the way of Christ. In medical parlance, there is, for doctors, the Hippocratic Oath, which includes the idea that, first of all, you must do no harm. For us Christians, the primary ethic and way of living our lives, if we are going to follow the one who is a lion, made himself into a lamb, is to say, Father God, I will happily lay down my life for the lifting up and the building up of other people who need it. Who needs it? Point me in the right direction. My life is yours and I will lay it down joyfully for their sake. We must be Christians as slaughtered lambs because Jesus Christ is the slaughtered lamb for us. If you're going to follow Christ, then following Christ means being wounded but not answering back. Hearing someone give you a sharp, snappy, critical word and you not responding to it. It means when someone says something hurtful, you simply take it and then you walk away and get on your knees before Christ and say, Father God, forgive them that don't know what they do, but bring about salvation in their life anyway because you did for my life. If we're going to follow the way of Christ, then we're going to have to be just like the slaughtered lamb that Christ is for us. So, who is our God? He is the one enthroned in heaven. He is the one who is in the midst of the throne, both standing before it for our sake and sitting on it, loving us dearly. He is the perfect spirit empowering all good things, including our lives and our ability to hear and believe his word today. Our God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Our God is for us. Our God loves us. Our God is our hope. And the fulfillment of our hope is this. Christ is worthy to fulfill the perfect plan of God, to open the scroll, to look at it, to read it, and to accomplish it. The forgiveness of our sins, the resurrection of the dead, the judgment of all evil, the condemnation of all evil, and a perfect eternity together with Jesus Christ our Lord. This is who our God is. And what are we going to do? First of all, you've got to recognize you've got nothing to bring to the table. But then, 
You've got to turn and offer your entire self, everything that is yours belongs to you or that you know about in service of Jesus Christ as Lord. Third, if you're going to be a follower of Christ, then you're going to be a follower of the slaughtered lamb. And so we are going to offer our lives, not just when it's convenient, but even and especially when it hurts for the service of our Lord, knowing that it is Christ who empowers us who gives us strength and that all of our hopes in him will be vindicated on the day when Christ returns. This is what it is to be a Christian and to believe in Jesus Christ as Lord. Let us now do exactly what these elders, what these living creatures, what this heavenly host does. Let us join all of them today in praising God and saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slaughtered and you purchased people like me for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation and you made them into a kingdom and priests of our God and they will reign on the earth. Amen and let it be.